is Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. My guest today is Millet Keller, my dad, who I credit with installing a love of Alaska and the outdoors in both myself and my brother. He and my mom, Pat, came to Anchorage only four years after statehood, and they were both players in key moments of the growth of Anchorage and Alaska. Welcome to Outdoor Explorer, Dad. Well, it's great to be with you, uh, Lisa. I've been trying to get you for a while, so I'm glad that we finally had this opportunity because I think there's some really important things you have, both about recreation and in Anchorage and just being in the outdoors in Anchorage during the 60s and 70s and 80s, and then just these key like moments that you were around for some different things that happened, which um, are have nothing to do with the outdoors, but are really interesting and should be preserved. So I'm looking forward to the stories you've told me to having everybody else hear these stories too. Uh, so, so let's start with you and that you grew up in Great Falls, Montana and tell me what that was like growing up in Great Falls in the forties and fifties, basically. Well, Montana's uh, somewhat like Alaska in regard for very low population. And it used to be, um, I think Alaska was, had the least, was least populated and Montana was um, a little bit, uh, was we, we were a one congressman state, just like Alaska and Montana still is that way. But, um, but everything is small. There's no big cities in Montana. There's three or four uh, relatively small cities, but nothing like you see. In fact, Great Falls is a lot like a tiny, uh, Anchorage because, uh, Anchor, or, or Great Falls had about 50 to 100,000 people somewhere in that range when I was growing up. And it's not much bigger than that now. Mm -hmm. So um, it was small, essentially a small town. And um, they, they had real winters instead of none of this warm stuff, except an occasional Chinook, which would we could see temperature changes of 50 degrees in one day, that sort of thing. So um, that's my memories of being there, like at Thanksgiving, like Montana, Great Falls. Right. It could be a winter Thanksgiving or it could be like 50 degrees. <laughs> right. Uh, there aren't any big mountains around Great Falls, though, right? Uh, not near. Uh, I mean, not you have to go about probably 40, 50 miles to get into. Uh, mountains and they're not you're, you're right their timber goes right to the top of the mountain so they're not that big and uh, in our part or in the great falls part is in we're more of a prairie town actually and wheat farming is big and um so uh that's pretty much the the uh, commerce side of things and we're on the east side of the rockies which puts us out on the western edge of the Great Plains. So we've got kind of that Great Plains moving up to um, the Rocky Mountain Continental mm -hmm. Divide. So when you were growing up, you did a, a fair amount of hunting and fishing, right? Right. It was hunting and fishing, a big deal. It was a lot bigger deal for my dad than it was for me, though. I think it, it was ingrained in him, uh, very much like a native uh, of. Uh, would would have if somewhere in the gene uh, genetic code are uh, this fishing and hunting need to because we ate everything when, when we hunted and I 
uh, I hunted for about two or three years and then it, I didn't like it. It just, it was more, it was more uh, fun to, to you know, like to see the animals, but I, I kind of lost interest in, but my dad and my brother both um, maintained it for a long, long past mine. I, so for you, hunting and fishing was, you know, you didn't necessarily need to bring anything home, but what you really liked was just being outside. Right. The outdoors was the fun. We, we would, uh, you could get a hunting license. I'm trying to remember, I think when you're 13 or 14 years old, somewhere that you, you can get a hunting license. So uh, until that time, we walked, uh, most of our hunting was done in, in around uh, wheat, winter wheat stubble fields, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Because birds, you hunt for ducks and pheasants and that sort of thing, as far as birds are concerned. So, but anyway, that it was it was kind of a kind of a small town. Every, everywhere you go, I'll tell you one thing that was a really big change, though, and tells you a lot about the culture. You could, when we were hunting birds, um, you could take your gun out and and uh, hunt on private property, with the farmers not having any. Uh, any reason to kick you off. They kind of just, so it was kind of a cooperative thing between the hunters and the farmers. And occasionally you would see a no trespassing sign. And in most cases, if you wanted to hunt, like you saw some pheasants or something scoot across the road into a guy's, a guy's fields, uh, you just go up and knock on the door and say, we'd like to hunt out here on your back 40 and he would say, no problem, just be careful. And all of that changed radically. There's, uh, farmers couldn't afford to let a hunter on there because if they shot them, if they shot one of the hunters, shot the other hunter, hunter uh, there would be a lawsuit mm -hmm. and, and the farmer would end up, or you would end up owning a farm. So, yeah. hunters. so, so there's a great deal of freedom. That's the sense that as long as you respect the property, respect the land, you close gates. And so that changed radically. So I, in fact, I'm not sure how they do it now, whether you have to go hunt on, on a private ranch or, or something, a hunting ranch, something like that. Mm -hmm. But culturally, just think of the freedom that you had as long as you respected the property. Um, so, so that was kind of my experience of hunting. Mm -hmm. um, at, at some point, the Keller family, so your dad was an optometrist in Great Falls and there were five kids, you were the oldest, but at some point there was a trip to Alaska, like before statehood, right? Right. Did you go on that trip? No, I didn't, my brother did. My brother and my dad and my grandfather I think I met one or two others. They drove from Great Falls to, uh, I'm not sure, either Fairbanks or Anchorage. I'm not sure which were they. I think it might have been Fairbanks where they ended up. And they flew on a, on a um, sightseeing kind of trip to Kotzebue. And um, they didn't do any hunting or anything like that. And drove back after they had uh, kind of uh, drunk in some of the culture of Kotzebue. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because he, he came back and he said one of the things that really surprised him was to see these little mounds uh, out in the tundra. 
And now those mounds are gigantic sinkholes that are, are uh, being created by the freezing of the permafrost. Mm-hmm. And at the, at the time when they were there, they were just little indentations um, and it was frozen right to the top. There wasn't a, there wasn't a thawed layer. We actually so they were, the, the dangers of that thawed thawed layer in uh, I think when Wally might have been when Wally was governor. Mm-hmm. Wally Hucko was governor, um, and they wanted to have a road to the North Slope, and this was before the discovery the discovery well, but it was close in time. And so they just went out in the winter and scraped a road. Mm-hmm. On and the ice. On the ice. It was frozen, yeah, the ice frozen roads. Road, yeah. And uh, by, the, by the beginning of the next summer, there was this huge scarp of, of thawed swamplands where there used to be a road. And there was no passable road. You had to wait for winter to for the thing to freeze up. And I think they, mm-hmm. it, it, it ended up sealing itself because they had cold winters. Mm-hmm. So the thing over a period of times so got sealed up. So, but, but you could see the, the uh, how much of in, the influence on uh, doing anything in, in dealing with permafrost. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there was permafrost at Anchorage when we came in 1963 on the, what would, be the south side of Chester Creek. Oh, wow. So the shady side. Yeah. And there was frozen ground there year round, about a two or three block area. I mean, I kind of remember as a kid running into frozen pieces of ground in the summertime, you know, when we would be out digging or whatever, you know, so. So you went to college, you, you arrived in Palo Alto, you went to Stanford and you eventually got a, a master's degree in geophysics, but um, what I really remember is you talking about how you love geology and geophysics because you liked being outside and being in the field and looking at rocks. And then you dragged mom along with you too to help. She typed up your master's thesis, right? Yeah. And she did helped you with a lot of the field work and stuff. And this was all in Northern California. Right. Near, um, near Santa Rosa. Yeah, near Santa. So, so kind of like the other part. I mean, a huge part of your heart is in Montana and Alaska, but also that holds a special place to you being outside in Northern California. But you had also um, already been working with computers at that point. Right. So that was new. That was really fortunate. We were fortunate to be, uh, it it moved it into the curriculum right away. So probably when I started, they probably had had the courses, the introductory courses that started around two or three years while I, while I was an undergraduate, in fact. And um, I mean, it was pretty primitive compared to what we, what we see now that the computers were gigantic in terms of floor space. Yeah. And um, all, most of your input to put anything in was on punch cards. So there's none of this keyboard uh, hooked straight to the computer. You, sat down at a punch card machine and punched all of your input into cards, a big stack of cards that ends up and then you load that. It's got the program cards in front and the data cards behind it. And uh, then you get about five or six errors and you, which you 
you uh, characterize as um, being uh, some kind of machine error. And uh, after four or five attempts and finding four or five errors in the, your programming code, you finally got the thing to compile correctly. And I mean, that's re really primitive. And we're talking about the, this, the speed of things. Uh, we're so, by standards now, I mean, the self, they, when people talk about, you could, there's as much computing power in a cell phone as there used to be in a supercomputer of the supercomputer of the day. So uh, lots of changes and, and it was fortunate that I was, it's all of this started, this is kind of the beginning of when Silicon Valley started as well. Mm -hmm. It was just Lockheed and Varian and making it and Hewlett Packard making uh, CRT devices for scientists. Anyway, that was kind of how that, where that went. So. so when you graduated from college, you got like married right away. I mean, when you got your master's, you were married right away. You, you and mom were married in Palo Alto. And within three days, you were on a plane to Anchorage uh, because you had a job with Texaco. Right. as a geophysicist, right? right? So when you first, this is a story I find kind of funny. What, like when you first got to Anchorage and you walked off the airplane, I remember you saying that the, the Texaco guy came out and you had to get off on the tarmac, right? Right. And the Texaco guy came out and mom has said, of course, like she was like one of very few women on the airplane. It was almost all men on the airplane. And the Texaco guy came straight to you, probably because you were a couple, but also didn't he make some comment about, oh, I knew you guys were from Palo Alto because you look so nice or you're dressed so nice. No, we, I was dressed with a suit and tie. <laughs> and, and everybody else is in Alaskan attire. Well, yeah, in most cases, the whole plane, everybody wore their Sunday clothes. Everybody coming to Anchorage? Everybody, if you were a man or a woman or anything, part of the courtesy, um, it was considered too much bus-like if you, if you just wore civilian clothes. So you mm -hmm. ended up wearing your suit and tie or your dress or whatever it is that yeah. was the appropriate uh, dress-up kind of function. So then he probably... The culture change when you think about it. it yeah. There to worse than a bus. I mean, you yeah. got more leg room on a bus than you have on an airplane. So. Yeah. And we can wear our pajamas on an airplane right? now, right? Yeah. <laughs> carry a pillow on with you so but he probably identified you guys then because like mom was one of the few women getting off the yeah. airplane <laughs> ratio was about two to one in those yeah. days two, yeah. two men to two two men per per woman that's what it amounts to do you remember what the population was in anchorage at that time 60,000 60,000 60,000 yeah so you get to anchorage you're working for texaco um, and then you don't stay with Texaco for very long. And this is right. kind of the melding of your geophysics with your IT, right? At this, at this time. Right. Yeah. IBM is the, in fact, Texaco had us go over to the IBM office. So that was, that was about it. So. And Texaco kind of thought that they were going to keep you as an IT person, but then IBM swooped in and got you. Right. Yeah. yeah. So you've been working 
you know, it's uh, March of 1964. We're only a few days off it right now, yeah. the anniversary. March and <laughs> it, yeah, you remember very clearly you were working downtown. Yeah. And you're working for IBM at this point. So you have those huge mainframe no, computers. Working, still working for Texaco. Oh, you were still working for yeah. Texaco. Yeah. Were, were you in the room with some big computers though? No. Okay. No. I got that part of the story. What wrong. happened? Yeah. <laughs> what happened was the um, this aptitude test. Um, this ap the aptitude test kind of centered who in the office would would ha have have uh, and, and they were starting at that time to shoot for people that would have the technical uh, uh, aspect. So. Um, our office was it was just a plain office, and you didn't have to wear a suit when you went to work. Um, and it, it, that that was kind of the industry. The oil industry was casual dress, and at least the best of my recollection, it may there may have been <clears throat> uh, times when that wasn't necessary. <clears throat> but um, it the, the, taking the test and and uh, the fact that we had to abandon the office uh, on the earthquake, there was significant damage. Um, so, so let's back up to the like yeah, when the earthquake started. Bit, I'm, I'm <laughs> rethinking now who was I working for when the, I was working for IBM at the time of the earthquake. I yeah. thought so because I had these, sto these stories in my head. Of course, I could be wrong and misremembering, but of you talking about the big, because yeah, you well, know, it was, yeah, we people were who were born before after a certain year don't, maybe they've seen pictures of how big these computers were. I mean, they took up whole rooms yeah. you know, and they were, they were, it was hot, you know, because there's all this energy being used to power them. And you were in this room with maybe one or two other people, men, and you were in with these big, huge computers when the earthquake started. Yeah, they weren't. They, yeah, the, the one we were working on was kind of refrigerator size. Mm. But um, and you and you were in a building table. next to the J.C. Penney building, right? A block away. Yeah, okay. and our our uh, Texco office had been literally right next to, to uh, J.C. Penny, mm -hmm. which was the big retail store. Uh, and the, uh, we were, we were working, uh, or come, we'd come in to work uh, in this uh, customer's office, which is about two blocks away. Went, and that's where we were when the earthquake struck. So. Mm -hmm. And then what were your first thoughts when the earthquake struck? Well, there were two big jolts. One, there was another guy and I, he was in the computer room working on something in there. And I was at a key punch machine outside the computer room, punching up cards or for uh, our program, whatever we were working on. And um, that, uh, there were two big jolts. Um, the first one uh, moved pretty, it was just a, a real fast sound, real fast because earthquakes are sound waves mm -hmm. going through the ground. So uh, I backed, I shoved my seat back from the key punch, just you know, because you were going to stand stand up, and 
phone, the main uh, ground motion started right away, you know, five or 10 seconds afterwards. <clears throat> and I hollered in and he hollered out about the same time. Did you feel that? You know, just everybody, most people living in Alaska have had to do that at least once. Uh, but there was no question that the ground was shaking but, uh, violently. And so we got up and he shut the computer off. He did the first thing he oh, did. Oh, whoa. <laughs> Good for him. But you could damage things. Uh, nowadays, you can drop it from six feet and yeah. nothing will happen. So. And um, so we stood in the doorway between the room he was in and the room I was in. And you started, you started, uh, I had never really felt a, too big of an earthquake, even all the time in California, I think only once. And then one other time where I think it might've been a sound wave or a sound mm -hmm. barrier. Uh, oh, wave. right. So we're standing there, we're chatting away about, you know, what is this thing going to stop or whatever? And it, things go through your mind. I could look out the window and I could see it looked like a hurricane. Trees were swinging back and forth. And it looked like the, the glass windows to me. Now, I, I know it couldn't do that, but you could see the window frames bend. And they would go back and forth. And you, you're kind of thinking there shouldn't have been glass shattering or something, but there wasn't. So that's I, pretty crazy. Yeah. But when you looked out in the parking lot, you could see ripples. Wow. Just coming across the parking lot. And uh, cars stopped because you couldn't drive. The, the road was heaving and that sort of thing. But uh, no, he and I, so we started talking. A little while later, you can start to smell hot water. And it's probably, I don't know where the, where it was. I mean, it was inside, but there somewhere along the line, the water line had broken. And you think a little bit about, is this the end of the world? Mm -hmm. After it's, after one or two minutes of this, and it's, it's, it's uh, unrelenting. It just, just keeps booming back and forth and you need to hold on to something to stand up because otherwise it was, it would knock you to the floor. So we're hanging onto this doorway. And at about three minutes, you thought this must be the end of the world because there's nothing. It's just not stopping. I couldn't, couldn't, uh, it, it couldn't sustain this kind of activity without having some huge, uh, <laughs> as it turned out, it was the second largest earthquake ever recorded in the Western hemisphere. So mm -hmm. it was, uh, but anyway, after about four and a half minutes, it finally stopped. And then were you guys just in shock at first? I mean, you knew well, you had a, you had a newborn, me at home yeah. with mom, and we yeah. lived in Turnigan. Yeah. So you did, you had no idea of the devastation that had happened out there yet. No, the only thing that it went it looks funny. Uh, West High used to be a two story, or maybe a three story. When I drove home uh, to get to Turnigan, um, I I saw. West High. I mean, it had to drive right by it, and it had lost its top floor. There, there wasn't a top floor anymore, and I thought mm -hmm. that looks kind of funny. You know, I, mean, <laughs> I couldn't spot the fact that the thing had collapsed. We, you've told us this story yeah. since we were little kids, and we've always gotten such a kick out of it that you didn't realize that the floor had collapsed. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> so then by the time I got to Turnigan, I could smell gas. And um, and also low-flying helicopters kind of flying back and forth. And, and to this day, when I hear a helicopter, I think about it. I wow. mean, it reminds me of mm -hmm. helicopters flying over, trying to find, and it turned out, I think there were nine people in Turnigan that got killed. They, that was the death toll. Just, and we lived on Tulick Street, yeah, the end no, of that street yeah, went down. Yeah, our, and we lost, um, we were, we were, he had convert the uh, landlord had converted from uh, oil to gas heat, probably about a year or so before we got there. We'd been there six or eight months, something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he we we uh, spent spent the night at a friend or maybe it's two nights at a friend's house, and then the landlord just hooked hooked the oil heater back up. And so we had heat. So we oh, could wow. back, back into the into the place. But you had to haul your um, sewage out for a couple of weeks, didn't you? Yeah, it your was, honey buckets. Uh, no, there was it. It was a great uh, experience in terms of uh, the local government. There, there had been some looting that had started, and but by the time I think by the time we left, they uh, you could already see National Guard people coming. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all the streets and um the before we left the downtown i when I, I, we came out of the building i looked over and the penny's building was about a block away and it looked like it was tilted <laughs> and uh, so i didn't think anything about it except you, you kind of question see, seeing anything just because you've seen the floor ripples in the floor and all this sort of thing but um, as it turned out, the other side of the pennies had collapsed. And so it, was, it wasn't so much that it was, uh, it looked like a beached ship. In other words, you had, they had the big bow sticking up there and mm -hmm. you're looking across. And um, anyway, back to, back to Turnigan. The, uh, so we moved back in and uh, they, this was March, end of March, so we, it freezes at night. And what they had done is they, they got some uh, aluminum tubing that's used for watering, um, but in the, in the winter it's not used, of course, and they laid that down all the streets where you could still get to your house and turning it. There were places we could get to where, we, where our place was, but down the street about three or four was the edge of the landslide. Mm -hmm. And if your house was on the other side of that landslide, then you didn't have a house anymore. It was probably laying on its side. And um, so the end of our street was that way, but the, the street close to the Axton Northern Lights Boulevard was um, still passable. So, so what we did was they put this tubing down. And so you, we took our, take your garden hose out and hook it up to the tube that's the water tube that's, that's laying out in the street. And they, so you get water coming into the house through the hose, through your mm -hmm. garden hose. And um, that worked just fine, except it froze every night. <laughs> so you'd wait. So in the, in the evening, we would have to uh, uh, 
uh, store some water because you're going to need water is going to be frozen and uh, the outdoor water is going to be yeah. frozen. So the water <laughs> coming in, I should say, is it? so you, you needed water for coffee and all that sort of thing. But uh, oh, yeah, you need your water for coffee for sure. <laughs> right. But the the other thing that happened was uh, this is, it was kind of an outdoor experience, I guess. Uh -huh. um, the um, the the sewer lines had to be inspected, and because there had been so much damage, and they had to know where to where where pipe where there actually was going to be sewage going where it's supposed to be going, and um, so they they kind of put put everybody on alert. And what they did was they put a fifty five gallon drum oil oil barrel out in the street in front of every house. And you, uh, they had, they had a little Kent or a little camp uh, uh, toilet units. Just but but uh, there was a you. Uh, it's a, it's it was like a small chair, like an infant's chair, a little bit wider because your butts are a bit a bit wider. Yeah. But you could sit down on it and go into a bag. Uh huh. Well, it is essentially a honey bucket, wasn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a honey bucket. And yeah, then, yeah. <laughs> and then I mean, I mean, the thing is, is there are still people in in Alaska who are using that for their sewage. You know, that still happens oh, yeah, in yeah. some places yeah. in Alaska, which which shouldn't be happening anymore in yeah, the United right. States. Yeah. So anyway, so you got a little taste of what yeah. what village life was like, really. You are listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll hear more from Millet Keller and his role in Alaska history. You're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. Find the show anytime as a free podcast in the iTunes store, or connect with us online at alaskapublic.org. You are listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. My conversation with Millet Keller continues. So now this is the story that always blows me away that you have, because you didn't tell us this story until like, I don't know, it's been within the last 10 years that you told us this story. So you and Jean had SCS. And I remember clearly that you had, this is the part I remember is that you had space in the old BP building, the big stone building that's a real estate building now, I think on C Street. And then you also had an office across the street. Maybe that came later. But um, during that time when you were first there, you had a contract with BP. And then there was this young man who came over from the UK named John Brown. And so tell us about John Brown, the person we now is, know as Sir John Brown. And he was eventually the CEO of Worldwide BP. Right. So you met John Brown when he was 19 years old. Yeah, he just had come from uh, uh, the UK. I think, that's, I think that's where he was. But uh, they had, had uh, caught him, I think, early in his career. He's a genius quality type person. It's one of those people that you, you end up working with that 
is so much, I mean, at a completely different level. And he had graduated, I think he had a PhD in chemical engineering or, or uh, petroleum engineering, something like that, which he got in two years in, in the UK. And um, we were doing, we had started doing some work with BP and um, accounting, accounting work. And Gene was kind of heading up that, that part of the thing because you could we could see this could very well turn into a really big deal rather than just a lucky coincidence. And um, so when John got to town, he wanted to get the lay of the land. And one of the things he needed to look into was computer uh, access, that sort of thing. So, um, the reason that he came was that they the discovery well on the on the Prudhoe Bay was was done by Atlantic at that kind of time it was called Atlantic Refinery it eventually became Atlantic Richfield um, and uh, he came because they were now uh, BP had fortunately purchased a good part of the available uh, lease tracks um, and so he showed up and and part of his thing was to find to start building the uh the the, the data processing uh that they needed for doing the petroleum uh, petroleum reservoir work uh so what happened so they know there's they they've established all the oil people have established yeah there's oil here but they don't really know where it is or how does that work well they um they had a lease sale in 1969 the, the state the state owned most of the luckily uh, during statehood they were allowed to purchase i think 60 million acres and they could pick out these acres and so Fortunately, this all happened, I think in the late, late 50s or early 60s. Um, they had a lease sale that uh, culminated in a lease sale. That, that this discovery well is one well, and you, you kind of think about it, and it is so big that the amount of oil and gas in that well is so big, they know they're on what they call an elephant reservoir. They actually use that name, an elephant. And then they can, they can tell you how many elephants there are in Saudi Arabia, how many elements there are in Indonesia or elephants. And now there's this elephant on the North Slope of Alaska. And um, with and they, they, they can see from one well where this is going. You know, it's going to be a, it's going to be a huge project. And so the first thing they have to do is outline the, the, the um, where, where the oil is and where it ends, where the oil ends. So they start doing, they start, they drill some more test holes to seek to confirm the discovery well. And the, the post, the, some, some of the, the test wells that they're doing are um, bigger than this discovery well. So they, they gradually start um, drilling wells um, 
beginning with test wells, but then later they once they know what they want to do, they they actually build the infrastructure to to do the do all of the pre, uh, preparation for product for producing oil and gas. And um, they do that by uh, when they drill a test well, they have these scientific instruments they drop down the hole, and they. They measure various conditions of, of the rocks, the permeability, which is, can, can oil flow. You gotta make sure that your reservoir has got enough pressure in it and it's got enough volume in it that you can push. And it turns out that uh, they, all the, they confirm that they've got an, an elephant. A, uh, and these instruments that they drop down the well uh, are, are give them the data that they need to kind of fashion what this what the reservoir looks like and so they essentially they're building a a model of the, the oil field based on the data they collect from these instruments they drop down the wells so so is all this data available to all the oil companies yeah they all they share the way they they have unit it's called a unit agreement and all the people who have any kind of ownership of this of this field um they form what they call a unit agreement, which means they 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 share instead of each individual having to only get well oil and gas out of their little corner, which is the way oil used to be developed a hundred years ago in Oklahoma. You see these massive uh, looks like trees, but they're all oil wells pumping away. And in Long Beach, California, you can still see them in in property. You're driving down the street and there's a producing oil well you just walk, drove by between the Walmart and, or between the grocery store and the liquor store. So anyway, they don't do that anymore. <laughs> they quit doing it a long time ago because what would happen is they would just, everybody's poking their own holes and they end up destroying the reservoir because the, they either it depressurizes or it only produces in a fraction of what's there. And so they they much prefer, and now they're required to do it. They um, they form a unit agreement. And they have to. Uh, there were eight owners. It turned out had eight eight oil companies had some kind of interest in in that. Ironically, one of them was not Texaco. Hmm. Um, so anyway, the uh, John is collecting all this data. And we start accumulating, and we're essentially building a model. Now it's, it would be called uh, artificial intelligence. <laughs> That's what it is. I mean, the way it is. And and there's kind of a race on now with all the companies to get the first solid oil field reservoir model completed, right? Yeah, they they have to all agree on. So mm -hmm. this idea isn't somebody outsmarts somebody else. It's they they somebody's studying one thing and they find it and they have they have meetings every two or three weeks in Los Angeles and they get together uh, at those meetings when bring the data that they've an interpretation of the data that they have and um, everybody gets updated by what what other people are thinking or doing just to, in following the, the general business practice of, of uh, producing oil and gas. And and they, early on, they re, they realized they the gas gas was huge. Gas was also an elephant, uh, 
huge amount of gas. And but there's no pipe or there's no pipeline for either oil or gas. But they deemed at that time that the gas should be reinjected because they could it could keep the pressure higher in the, in the field and make it possible to recover more of the oil by having the gas um, having a source of gas to pressurize and then it's, it gets produced the gas does and reinjected again so it's used over and over um, so anyway so that, that uh, John starts working on this thing and and he gets uh, some information or when he was up here doing his reconnoitering, I guess, to find what kind of support there is. Um, the accounting guy, he's he's temporarily officed in the same place with the accounting guy. And um, the reason that that became an issue was that the uh, they decided that BP and Atlantic Richfield would um, be the... Uh, would be the managers of, of the unit. And so they, it was their job. That's why they ended up building the facilities in the North Slope for BP built, because they, they split the responsibility up between, I don't know whether it was an east side, east of the east half of Prudhoe or, or uh, west half. I'm not sure how that worked, but anyway, they, uh, all the other, the other six members are just kind of following along to find out if this reservoir extends over their leases. And uh, if so, what, what are they gonna have to do? They won't have to run the thing and hire employees, but they're certainly forecasting their revenue flow and all that sort of thing based on their percentage of the unit. So, so John you and, is going you and to these John, meetings every three weeks in. So you and John are, so he's going to the meetings, getting all the data, and then the, the two of you ended up, end up hooking up to develop this model, right? Right. Yeah. So, so what the, the information they get out of these instruments that they drop down the, uh, it kind of adds to the, the the data that you're collecting, and you can eventually map all the permeability, which tell, tells you whether you're in sand or you're in clay or something like that. And you want to be in sand because, and you don't care so much about water because oil floats on water. Mm -hmm. So you uh, you can find fairly easily with these instruments where the oil water barrier is because that's going to be the bottom of the of the oil and the other instruments can measure where when you're coming down the well when you when you hit the sand that has the oil in it so anyway they end up with a fairly detailed um, map with all these different readings permeability and porosity all that sort of thing and uh, and then each each partner each partner has uh, their share gets every everybody's share gets shifted every three weeks because the more data you get, the better definition you get of where the oil is, and and 
how much oil is kind of spread out over everybody's lease, uh, everybody's leases for that for the field. So the two of you are now plugging numbers into the computer. Right. Yeah, it was seven days a week, many hours a day. It, and sometimes, I mean, and yeah. because of how computers were back then, they easily overheated and everything. So you got, you and John Brown were taking turns babysitting the, the big mainframe computers and they would break down in the middle of the night and then you get a phone call, right? We didn't have too much with the, with the computer. They, that reliability, we didn't have too much of that. Most That's not what mom says. <laughs> you know, mom yeah. said you guys were getting these 4 a.m. phone oh, calls. Oh, no, we would. We, we'd yeah. run around the clock, yeah. But part yeah. of what you do is that every time you you add more data, you have to kind of refresh the the model that you're working on with more accuracy in terms mm -hmm. of, of uh, what and where and and uh, is, is needed for the model. And that's what would take so long. You kick this thing off, it would take six or eight hours to run and update the model and then run the reports that you're using to, to interpret what you're, what you're doing. So he, he and I, I mean, it's still pretty primitive when two people are doing something like this, especially John, because he, he, didn't, he didn't need textbooks or anything like that. He was, if you wanted the, the uh, formula for something, uh, the mathematics part of it, uh, he, 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 could, he could do it without having to-, to uh, Just in his head. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, amazing. <laughs> so eventually you, the two of you developed the, the first working oil field reservoir model for the North Slope. Uh, I'm not sure if it was the first, but it, it was the one that counted. It was the one that counted. Okay. <laughs> You're being far too humble, Dad. <laughs> so then when John Brown was doing his farewell tour, about to begin his farewell tour, which sort of got derailed, which is a whole nother story, but he had all these different places that he had worked for BP um, and he was going to go visit all of them. And he was obviously going to come to Alaska because this was a really important place for him. And he had a list of about, I think it was a list of six or eight people that he wanted to see while he was here. And one of them was you. So talk about the impact he made on you and what you think um, the impact you made on him. Well, the, um, the, uh, what eventually happened uh, with his three week meetings and they're still drawing, still uh, drilling test wells and getting, uh, accumulating more information. Um, and eventually, uh, instead of six hours to run the model, you know, to update it and uh, kind of run the model and John had everything figured out in terms of, of uh, what, what you needed to, once you, once you got the information, what you needed to do with it. Um, and it got to be eight or 10 hours to run the thing, the model. And I could see what was happening. We were already, the, we did not have enough computer facility to keep up with it because this idea of us coming in 
at 4 a.m. and doing two shift, which he was doing, he was doing as well. So um, we talked about uh, the next step, where did, because we can't do it on the computer we have here in town. In fact, I wasn't sure uh, that, where, where it would go, but I, so there was, at that time, this would be in 68 or nine, or 70, somewhere, somewhere right around there, we kind of maxed out. And so uh, there was an outfit at the time called Controlled Data Systems. And they were in the supercomputer business and they had a, a office with a, with a, um, with a supercomputer yeah. in Palo Alto. Mm. So we went went down there to, I contacted them about and told them what the story was. And we were essentially shopping for um, a big mainframe to, to run this thing on. And uh, which nowadays is called the cloud. <laughs> which we are recording to right now. <laughs> which essentially is we were hooking up um, uh, and actually with even with Atlantic now, we they had, they had more uh, compute, uh, computer needs as well. And so we were actually transmitting data for them down to their computer in Dallas. So anyway, um, but this, this thing, our model was, uh, it just, it, it, we just needed to find a way to, to step up so he could keep growing because this thing was, it was huge. And, um, so a control day, the CDC 6600 was the supercomputer. And that day, in those days, it was the biggest supercomputer. So we went, made a couple of trips down there and we talked about what they can do and you know the programming language that was used and because they would take over all the programming that went to, to monitor. And um, then we had to, figure out a way to transmit all of this data down there. So you know, we do it on magnetic tapes, just those old stereotype things where you see this, the tapes spinning back and forth and so forth. That's, that's what was going on, what goes on on a tape drive. And um, we bundled the whole thing up and uh, took it down there, installed it. Uh, they installed it because at that point it's, it's their baby and, and uh, they've got to own it. Once we, once they're confident enough that that uh, in, in checking, so they did kind of a due diligence on all of the data and the procedures we're using, all that, and uh, that was it. I stepped back, and John started hanging out in Palo Alto. <laughs> well, I think Mom would have rather you guys were hanging out in Palo Alto because that's where her family was. <laughs> well, that's where CDC was. That's why. Yeah. But I know, but her family was there too. Yeah. So oh, I think she would have rather, mom would have rather been hanging yes. out there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Instead she's in, Al she was in Alaska. Right. <laughs> so, so back to what was the kind of impact John made on you? Well, it's really humbling when you work with somebody who knows so much and um, so, and you get to share some of that education, essentially just solving nut, nut cracking. A lot of times he came back and there was something called a, um, 
a triple, he's looking for trends, you know, things to do. And they, were, they called it, they had a cubic spline technique. I'd never heard of a cubic spline technique, but um, it's a way to take a, a kind of a jagged, uh, uh, kind of a jagged <laughs> output line that you get on, on uh, by averaging three points. And each time you, you add one, it's kind of like a rolling average with three points. Uh, and so I looked up what a cubic spline is. <laughs> and I, and I, he knew, so I, I, I would wrote, wrote, wrote it into a program. You want to see what, what would change if you, if you go to this using only three points to try to, and then connect them. They all have to mm -hmm. connect. So, um, but that just to be, to work for, with somebody who's, who's uh, so sharp and so open. I mean, he, he didn't hide anything or try to do any shortcuts he, and he didn't complain. Uh, he expressed concern, you know, if something, he's, he's leaving for the, for the uh, three week meeting in Los Angeles mm -hmm. tomorrow afternoon or something like that. And you've got to have this thing this computer run without any problems because there's no way to stop to restart it and redo it. So, and, and you were both pretty young. So this was like 1969, 1970. Yeah, yeah. So you maybe had just, you were like 29 and he was yeah. 19. Yeah. yeah. And so is it kind of, why do you think you made such an impact on him that he wanted to see you? Was it that intensity of just working together yeah, we on worked, a project? We very close together. And we talked about, I mean, you don't just sit there and talk about cubic splines. You're, you're also <laughs> talking about what all this means. You know, the state has now got this elephant oil field to, to, to dive into. Mm -hmm. And um, all of that was down the road. They had to build a road for the pipeline first because of the the hickle ditch turned out to be uh, a good lesson to avoid and they made they made these really elaborate insulation uh, layers for, uh, so that uh, the ground would stay frozen mm -hmm. and that became the uh, part of where when the when you see the pipeline the elevated part of the pipeline um, had to be elevated because the permafrost right underneath it would melt and they couldn't get enough insulation in so they just put it above ground and the heat dissipated and uh, the the uh, some somebody invented they i'm sure they've got a big patent deal now where the where the um, the support the pipeline support had a little freezing mechanism like a, a like a refrigerator kind of mechanism in it to keep it frozen in in the in the in the tundra, mm -hmm. so uh, and then places where you had nice gravel and you didn't have permafrost, you just bury the pipeline there because it's going to be safe. Um, but anyway, just it's just one of those things where you work for a long time and um, with somebody, and you just develop a real friendship and. Uh, also, you learn the little cultural things on British dry humor, and I mean, anyway, that's that's my my uh, experience with John. <laughs> um, so I think at this point, Dad, we're gonna wrap it up for this episode. Uh, but I have like a whole bunch 
more questions to ask you. So we're going to, you and I are going to continue to talk, but um, this is going to be the end of the road for this episode. And I want everybody to know that my guest today is my dad, Millet Keller, and he just um, told us a lot about growing up in Montana and then uh, by way of Stanford coming to Alaska in the early 60s and what that was like and the 1964 earthquake and his work with John Brown and BP. And then next week, you're going to hear more about uh, some early, I guess, outdoor and indoor facilities in, in Anchorage that um, he was a piece of and Probably maybe the more interesting thing, especially right now, is you're going to hear about his role in um, bringing Don Young uh, as our congressman, because he had an early role in that. And then we'll also talk about his time on the school board and also his time as commissioner of administration for Wally Hickel. And this doesn't sound like um, a lot of normal outdoor explorer stuff, but I think this is like a classic, you know, wrapped up in the story of Alaska is that people come up here, love the outdoors. This just grabs their heart, but then they also played, especially over the last 50 or 60 years, these roles that we don't know about in how we've developed as a community. So thanks for joining me today, dad. All right. Glad to be with you. That's it for today's show. Thanks to my guest, Millet Keller. You can find pictures and links on the Outdoor Explorer page on alaskapublic.org. Next week will be the second part of this two-part series. We'll hear about Millet's outdoor adventures, his role in bringing recreation opportunities to Anchorage citizens, and his support of women and girls in sports. You'll also hear about his part in convincing Don Young to run for the House of Representatives in 1972, and the meaning of his nickname, Millet Scissorhands, bestowed upon him when he was a commissioner in the Hickel administration in the early 1990s. The show was produced by Eric Bork. My name is Lisa Keller, and from all of our hosts here at Outdoor Explorer, thanks for listening, and we'll see you outside. Outdoor Explorer is a production of KSKA Public Radio in Anchorage, Alaska. Theme music is by Portugal, the man. Views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the station or its underwriters. You can find Outdoor Explorer on Facebook and in your favorite podcast app. To see what's coming up on Outdoor Explorer and add your voice to the conversation, go to our website at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed, this is Alaska Public Media.